This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. Tonight we're covering part two of the Ivan Malat story. If you haven't listened to part one, you're definitely going to want to go back and check that out first and I'll have the link in my show notes to make it easy. It's been a few days since we walked through part one, so let me give you a quick little recap before we go any further. So where we left off, Ivan Milat is basically stirring up shit in southern Australia. He has abducted two women, raped one of them, but he was let off of those charges. He's also been convicted of many other petty crimes, and he's served time in prison, but he's been out for some time. He's been identified as a suspect in the attempted abduction and robbery of a young British man, but that case has pretty much been put in the bottom drawer. Backpackers keep going missing along the same stretch of highway, and police aren't sure yet what has happened to them or if there's potentially a serial killer on the loose. But everything is about to change because a body has just been discovered. September 19, 1992, just five months after the latest backpackers would go missing, a group of navigators were out exploring the forest. Now, this group met up once a month to hike through the trails of the beautiful Belanglo State Forest. Two members of the group had just reached the area known as Executioner's Drop, which got its name because it has this huge drop off into a very deep wooded gorge. At the Executioner's Drop, they smelled something absolutely foul in the area of a large boulder. At first, they thought it was likely a rotting animal carcass. The forest was known to be home to many free-roaming kangaroos, wallabies, and other species. Thankfully, they decided to investigate a little further because the smell was just so overwhelming. And they discovered a mound of debris about 7 feet long and 2 feet high. It truly looked like a shallow grave, so they got closer. And what they could see was what looked like a bone and a patch of hair sticking out from the brush. At first they thought that maybe it could be animal bone and maybe animal fur. But then they saw part of a black t-shirt and they knew it had to be human remains. Amongst the pile of leaves, sticks and other debris was also a shoe. 
They knew they had to report this to police, so they marked the location on their map and headed back towards their car, where there was mobile service. And they met up with the rest of the group to tell them what they had discovered. When they were within the area of cell phone reception, the group decided they needed to call the police to report that they had found a dead body in the Belanglo forest. And just as the sun was starting to set, police arrived on scene with torches, making their way up to Executioner's Drop, where they found the body of British backpacker Joanne Walters, the first of several to be discovered. Joanne's body was so badly decomposing that police could not initially determine who it was. Through the investigation and search of the area surrounding where this body was found, they ended up discovering a second body about 100 feet away. This body was partially covered by a log. A shoe and part of a lower leg were visible through a mound of leaves and branches that was roughly the same size as the first body. Of course, there were several backpackers who had been reported missing in the area by their families within the last few years. So while police worked hard to identify these two bodies that had been found, many of their families had heard the news and had called relentlessly to see if it might be their loved ones. Late in the afternoon of Sunday, September 20th, police confirmed that the bodies were in fact those of British backpackers Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, which had to be identified through dental records alone. The bodies were in terrible shape. Joanne had been stabbed viciously in the heart and lungs with one wound so deep that it had cut into her spine. She still had jewelry on both hands, and she was wearing blue jeans and black shoes. The zipper of her jeans was undone, but the top button was still fastened. Unfortunately, her body was so badly decomposed that police could not determine whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. Joanne's shirt and hands showed traces of dark hairs. The rotted remains of a cloth used as a gag was removed from her mouth, as were other cloth samples from the throat, which suggested strangulation. And it appeared that Caroline's body had even been used for target practice. Four bullets that remained inside her skull were preserved for forensic analysis, and detectives were confident that they would be able to use these to track down the weapon that was responsible. The women were absolutely brutalized before dying. It's really horrific. They'd been repeatedly stabbed, and like I said, both had their spinal cords severed so that they were paralyzed and couldn't even fight back. What was really interesting to investigators was how differently the girls were killed. Caroline Clark's killing seemed to be very cold and calculated. There didn't appear to be a sexual motivation, just brutalization of the body that ended in an execution. However, with Joanne's body, it was treated differently. With the jeans undone and her shirt and bra pushed up, police felt like her killing may have had a sexual nature to it. The first investigator on the case believed that there may actually be two killers at play here. One would be older and more dominant. The other, although equally sadistic, would probably be more submissive. He suggested that they may even be brothers, sharing a common interest in guns and hunting, and they had probably been involved in other sexually related crimes, either together or separately. 
Keep this in mind as we go further in the case, because only one person was ever convicted in these murders, and there's been a lot of controversy surrounding whether or not there was one or two killers. But back to the crime scene. There was a man-made brick fireplace that had been constructed near the bodies, and cigarette butts, and spent 22 caliber cartridge cases were also recovered from the scene. A ton of evidence was left behind. It looked like whoever had done this had spent quite some time in the area before and after the killings. Police did search the surrounding forest, but no more bodies were found at that time. Actually, over the next five days, 40 police searched a corridor 500 feet wide and one and a half mile long and didn't find any other evidence at all. So, police actually went on record as saying they didn't believe this to be the work of a serial killer. They thought that this was an individual incident, which is odd to me, because although they've only found two bodies, they were aware of several other backpackers who had gone missing in that area. And we're not talking about a large city here. This is a smaller area of town. Despite all of the forensics left behind and a ton of tips that came flooding in, police couldn't identify a suspect, although they went on to say that the killer was likely in his mid-30s, had a history of aggression, was familiar with the surrounding terrain, and was motivated by the pleasure of inflicting pain. Police also believed that the killer had to be familiar with the area, and they likely even lived nearby. And while police followed several different leads that were called in, they didn't end up anywhere solid. Then, in October of 1993, which was about a year later, there would be two more bodies found. The official search had been called off many months before, and the investigation was almost non-existent at this point. However, a local man by the name of Bruce Pryor just couldn't shake the feeling that there may be more bodies out there in that forest. It was well known that there was a slew of missing backpackers that had been reported, yet no other bodies had been found and Bryce just couldn't let it go. He decided to do a little searching on his own, and kudos to him for doing so. He set out into the Belangelo Forest, not really sure where he was intending on going, but with his eyes set out for anything that looked out of place. Soon he came upon what looked like a small, man-made fireplace built from brush rocks. It was similar to the man-made fireplace that was found where the first two bodies were located. So, he began walking around the area, kicking brush around as he went when he came upon a large bone, and it was actually about the same size as his own thigh. He still wasn't sure if it was human or maybe animal, because again, this forest had a ton of wildlife. So he put the bone down and began searching for any other bones. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors Chef Crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day, because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious, with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Suddenly, he spotted something white amongst some overgrown weeds. It was a human skull. He picked it up, wrapped it in a cloth, and took it with him back towards the entrance of the forest. Which, I'm like, no, you're disturbing the crime scene. But he would later say that he wasn't really thinking clearly. He was in shock, and at that point, he was afraid that no one would believe him. When he got out of the forest, he asked a group of people if they had a phone, and they called the police to report that he had found a dead body. Police arrived on scene to discover not only one body, but two bodies that were very badly decomposed. They were the remains of James Gibson and Deborah Everest, and they were found less than a kilometer away from the first two bodies. 
James and Deborah were the first known murdered hitchhikers, and unlike the other victims, they were actually from Australia. They had gone missing in 1989, never to be seen again until now. Several bones had been scattered across the site. Some bones were missing altogether, possibly taken by an animal. Beside the first body, Deborah's, police found a silver fob chain, a bracelet set with semi-precious stones, and a silver crucifix. The second body, James, still had a pair of white sneakers laced to the feet. Again, both bodies had to be identified by dental records alone. Post-mortem examinations again revealed that James had the same paralyzing spinal knife wounds. He also had two stab wounds that punctured the breastbone with cuts to the ribs indicating two or more wounds to the left and right sides of the front of the chest and two more in the upper back. In total, seven major wounds marked the skeleton. However, there may have been even more that just never touched the bone. Deborah's body was in much worse condition. Part of her jaw was broken away. Several fractures were found at the back of the skull. Four slash marks to the forehead, two on each side, and again, a deep stab wound that was very close to penetrating the spinal cord. At the crime scene, police found a black bra with stab wounds through one of the cups and a pair of gray tights that appeared to be used as a restraint. And of course, police also noted that a small fireplace was built near the bodies, just like the first case. With all of these similarities in the way that the bodies were cut and things found around the crime scene, police were prepared to say that they believed this was the work of a serial killer. They first tried to match up the shell casings that had been found around both crime scenes. They had been identified as being from a Ruger repeating rifle. However, over 50,000 such rifles had been imported into Australia between 1964 and 1982. So it was basically like looking for a needle in a haystack. They really couldn't use that specific piece of information to find the killer. So they searched for more bodies, exhaustively. The Belanglo Forest is massive. But 26 days later, another body was about to be found. A group of searchers came across a pair of pink women's jeans and a length of blue and yellow rope laid in plain view. Next to that was an empty 22 bullet packet. They also found empty drink cans riddled with bullet holes and a length of wire bent into loops, cartridge cases, and empty bottles which, of course, could just be debris left behind by hikers or someone who was camping. But then, searchers spotted something that they recognized immediately, a man-made fireplace, one that resembled the man-made fireplaces found at the last two scenes near the bodies. So they knew they had to search the area intensively. And finally, they came across a human bone wearing a brown leather hiking boot and a skull. This body would be that of missing backpacker Simone Schmidl, who went by the nickname Simmy. She was found wearing the clothing that she was last seen in, which made her easy to identify. However, a bunch of her belongings were missing, including a large backpack and other camping equipment. Simmy's body was found still partially dressed, with her shirt and underclothing pushed up around her neck. A pair of green shorts hung on the pelvis with the cord ties undone. Several items of jewelry and two coins were found next to her body. Simmy's chest and back showed numerous stab wounds to the left and right sides, 
front and back, including that telltale knife thrust to the spinal area, which again had severed the spinal column completely. But those pink jeans that had been spotted by searchers weren't Simone's. But they did match the description of a pair worn by another missing backpacker, a German woman named Anya Habschied. She and her boyfriend, Gaber Neusbauer, had been missing since December 1991. So the search had to continue. It was pretty clear there were even more bodies in the forest. And just two days later, two more bodies would be found. Anya and her boyfriend Gaber, the two German backpackers who went missing years ago. Gaber's remains were found under a pile of brush, partially covered by a large log. He was basically a skeleton at this point, and he was found with his decayed clothing still on him. Again, he had his jeans zipped open, but with the top button fastened, much like the other bodies. It also appeared that he had been shot many, many times, and bullets were found in the area matching the other bullets that had been recovered. Anya's body was found with her clothing bunched up around her shoulder, with her jeans being found some distance away. No wounds were evident on her body, however, her head and the first two vertebrae were missing. Upon further examination, it looked like her head had actually been severed from her body with either a machete or a sword and the angle of the cut indicated that the victim had probably been in a kneeling position with her head down when the cut was made, which is absolutely terrifying to think of. Whoever did this would have had her kneeling and then would have beheaded her with a sword. Now, back at the morgue, something interesting was noted about Gaber's body. He had a gag in his mouth, like several of the other bodies that had been found. However, this gag in particular had been tied with a different kind of knot than the one found on Joanne Walter's body. Kind of interesting, right? You would think that someone would just instinctively tie the same knot for each gag, but they didn't. So now, in total, the police had seven bodies, seven victims all found within the Balaglo forest with similar injuries, but killed in different ways, including being beaten, strangled, shot, stabbed, and decapitated. It was also assumed that several had likely been sexually assaulted, but unfortunately the bodies were too badly decomposed to definitively say so. Police believed that whoever did this spent a lot of time with the victims before they died. They likely inflected that paralyzing stab wound to the spinal cord in order to render their victim helpless so that they could take their time and come and go as they please. Police knew they had to find the serial killer. They offered a cash reward of $500,000 for any tips leading to who the killer or killers were. Public warnings were issued to all backpackers to steer clear of the Hume Highway and to be careful of their surroundings. Police worked tirelessly on all leads they received, following up with any eyewitnesses, examining all the evidence, nailing down those gun owners, but they didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Then, on November 13th, 1993, Paul Onions, that British backpacker who had been attacked three years earlier in Australia, you know, fondly known as the one who got away, he decided to call into police. He was back in the UK carrying on with his life when he had heard about the bodies of these backpackers being found on the news. 
Nobody had ever followed up with him from Australia regarding his police report, so he had to inquire and bring it to their attention just in case it had any sort of relation. We talked in more detail in part one about what had happened to Paul, but basically he took a ride from a man that he would identify as Ivan Malat. Ivan had introduced himself as Bill and seemed to be very friendly, so Paul was happy to take the ride. When they were driving down the highway, Bill, aka Ivan, pulled over to the side of the road, took out a gun and a piece of rope, and told Paul, this is a robbery. Paul instinctively jumped out of the truck, ran down the highway where he flagged down a car, got in, and drove off to the nearest police station to make his report. Oddly enough, though, his report just ended up in the bottom drawer somewhere, which is why no one had ever contacted him about it. But now, police were listening. They found the report that Paul had filed, and it identified Ivan Malat as possibly being this Bill guy who had offered Paul a ride that day. Well, wouldn't you know it, Ivan absolutely fit the profile of who the serial killer might be. He lived nearby, he had a passion for guns, he knew that forest well, and he had a criminal history. And... They actually had had a couple of tips come in that also pointed the finger at Ivan as being the backpack murderer. This was all enough to have a closer look at Ivan Malat. So, they began to surveillance his house and watch everything that he was doing. They learned that he had sold his Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive shortly after the first two bodies were discovered. That would be a little bit suspicious. This was also the vehicle that he had used to give Paul a drive. The one that he almost attacked him in. They also learned that Ivan had not been at work on any of the days when the victims had disappeared. Police decided they needed to fly Paul out to Australia so that he could pick out Ivan from a lineup. And Paul did identify Ivan from a video lineup, which was enough for the police to get a search warrant for Ivan's house. On May 22, 1994, a raid was carried out on several properties owned by the Malat family, and what they found was astounding. They discovered weapons, including a rifle and rifle parts to a 22 caliber Ruger. This matched the type used in the murders. However, what was even more astounding was that they found clothing, tents, sleeping bags, cameras, and other items that belonged to the dead victims. In Ivan's home, they even found a picture of his girlfriend wearing this white and green polo shirt. And as it would turn out, this polo shirt belonged to the victim, Caroline Clark. And Ivan had given it to his girlfriend, taken a photo of her wearing it, and put it up on his mantle, almost like a trophy. Police also found electrical tape, cable ties, and a bag of yellow and blue ropes, similar to those found at the crime scenes. There was just an overwhelming amount of evidence that would tie Ivan to the murders. The police also searched homes of other Malat family members where they found even more weapons, including a long curved cavalry sword suitable for the beheading and more items belonging to the backpackers that were killed. I mean, if that's not damning evidence, I don't know what is. Ivan Malat was arrested and charged with the attack on Paul Onions, as well as with the seven murders. Ballistic evidence came back and they matched his weapon to the attacks, which was pretty much the smoking gun. 
Throughout the entire trial, he maintained his innocence. And the really messed up part is that most of his family supported him and believed him. They said they didn't think he could possibly do such a thing, even though he had the belongings of the victims in his home. However, they would go on to say things like they believed the police planted the evidence there, and they didn't think the items even ever belonged to the victims at all. What's interesting, though, is that Ivan's legal defense went as far as to suggest that it may have been one of his brothers who committed the murders and then planted the evidence in his home. So while his legal team was basically throwing them under the bus, his family were still backing him and standing by him. Not all of his family, but the majority of them. One brother in particular that has not stood by Ivan is his brother, Boris. And if you look on YouTube, you can find a few different interviews where he talks about what it was like growing up with Ivan and how the rest of his family has basically shunned him because he really does believe Ivan is guilty of the murders. But it didn't matter what Ivan said. In the end, he was found guilty of all seven murder charges and he was given a life sentence for each victim. He was also found guilty for the imprisonment and robbery of Paul Onion, and he received six years for each of those crimes. Ivan's brother Boris would go on to say, All of my brothers are capable of extreme violence, given the right time and place individually. The things I can tell you are much worse than what Ivan's meant to have done. Everywhere he's worked, people have disappeared. I know where he's been. He then asked the reporters if they thought Ivan was guilty, and they replied that they did. And he went on to say, if Ivan's done these murders, I reckon he's done a hell of a lot more. How many, they asked, and he replied, about 28. Police would be able to convict him for these seven murders, but they agreed with Boris. They believed that he was responsible for a whole lot more. Unfortunately, we'll never know. Ivan Milat took everything to the grave with him. He spent the remainder of his life in prison. On October 27, 2019, at the age of 74, he died in Long Bay Prison of stomach cancer, still maintaining his innocence. And still to this day, many of his family members believe that he died in prison an innocent man. But beyond the Malat family, most believe justice was served. However, many also think that Ivan had to have help, that he didn't do this alone. And that's what we're going to talk about next. So we know that even on Ivan's deathbed, he wouldn't give up any information, right? Well, there would be a deathbed confession from someone else. Ivan Malat's defense lawyer, John Marsden, was dying and he wanted to clear his conscience. He wasn't just an attorney for Ivan, but the whole Malat family over the years. So he knew all of their history and all of their dirty little secrets. He gave a statement that not only had Ivan confessed to him, that he killed all of the victims, but that he had a partner, his sister, Shirley. He said Ivan's mother, Margaret, received her son's confession during a visit to Supermax prison just before her death, and reportedly, the sister, Shirley, was in on it. Maybe not the murders, we'll never know the full extent, but she definitely knew what was happening and likely assisted. It's also alleged that there was incest in the family and Ivan had been having sex with Shirley since the 1950s when she was in her 20s. Shirley died in February of 2003, so we'll never get any more information from her, 
Not that she was likely to give anything up anyway. She always backed Ivan, and it's probably because she had a hand in everything. Another theory is that Ivan's brother Richard assisted in the murders. When the newspapers announced that Caroline Clark and Joanne Walter's bodies were found, Richard had remarked, There's more bodies out there. They haven't found the two Germans yet. The two German backpackers were found over a year later. So, I mean, he may have known something before even the police knew it. That's pretty damning. And let's talk about that evidence. Joanne Walters, the first body to be found, she was found clutching hairs in her hand. The hair was DNA tested at the time, but it came back as not matching to Ivan or Joanne. And unfortunately, the tested samples were later destroyed by police after they had become contaminated. So it's something we'll never even be able to get answers to. But to me, that's clear evidence alone that someone else was involved. We just don't know who that someone is. Another interesting piece of evidence, cigarette butts and alcohol bottles were found at the different crime scenes. But Ivan, he didn't smoke or drink. He had given all of that up around the same time that his wife had left him. I'm not sure if any of these items were ever tested for DNA. I'm going to assume that they had to be. And since it was never brought up in court, we can assume that either they couldn't get a DNA profile off of them or perhaps it didn't match Ivan's DNA. And then it's just the way the crimes were committed and in so many different ways. This suggests that there were at least two killers, especially when we look at the gags that were found in the mouths and how they were tied different ways. They also found ammunition and shells that fit several different types of guns, which could point to two or more killers and two or more guns. And then what about Ivan's brother Richard's statement about the German backpackers? He knew more than he should have. This is a really tough case because clearly this family is a little too good at keeping family secrets a secret. But I do think it is pretty obvious that Ivan was guilty for the part that he played and in some capacity, justice was served. However, in my personal opinion, I am definitely of the belief that he did not do this alone. There seems to be more than one style of killing, and he often takes on more than one victim at a time. Then we have the eyewitness accounts. Really, it could be any of the brothers in the Malat family. They really all do look very much alike. The Malat family is a family of secrets that I don't think we'll ever really know. But if there are more victims, I really hope for the sake of their families that maybe someone, just one of them, comes clean before it's too late. They're all getting older, closer to death, and maybe, just maybe, someone will decide to clear their conscience. But I want to hear from you. What do you think? Do you think that Ivan Malat did this alone? His brother Boris certainly does. While he says he can see Ivan being a murderer, he also says that he doesn't see any of his other brothers as being capable of being an accomplice. But I'd love to hear what you think. Were there two killers? Let me know. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper 
or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'd love if you could subscribe and give me a thumbs up. If you'd like to become a Patreon and unlock some badass bonuses like exclusive ad-free episodes, a Facebook community, bi-weekly Zoom chats with me, visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper. Until next time, don't be a Dahmer or an Ivan Malat. Bye.